is proclaiming that it's creature o'clock so ring that buzzer it sounds like a lion roar roar and open the door to join us for the 39th annual meeting of the animal fan club i'm still traumatized by where the red fern grows mike i am the iron mantis of mayhem meredith we meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the dalmatian station to talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for in unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow! So, saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia. Woohoo! I think about where the red fern grows, like, maybe on, like, an every-other-day basis. I remember reading it and being so into it and so devastated at the end when the dogs start dying. I know. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. I remember in particular the graphic description of the entrails of the dog pouring out after it lost the fight with the mountain lion. Yes. Ooh. I know. I just remember reading it on the couch in our living room, which was like the couch in the house that nobody ever really used. So... It's, like, stuck in my memory that much more and just laying there, like, into the night sobbing after reading the ending of that book. It was so traumatic. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It's definitely still affecting me. And I actually, like, whenever I see dogs that look like that, too, I'm just, like, automatically transported to that scene where the entrails come out, the Saren's Getty spaghetti, if you will. I will. I, it's so upsetting. Like, how is that a book for children? But children love it. It's like a beloved tale. Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, a story about love and loss and all these other things. Yeah, animal pals. Yeah. First and foremost. Yeah. Oh. Well, Meredith, how was your week in animals? I'm so glad you asked because I kind of went from having lots of different, like, varied animal experiences to kind of having zero which is a bit traumatic in its own right, unfortunate. But, you know, there was a little little happy light at the end of this tunnel because, so listeners from early on in this podcast may remember that I I was having a one-sided love relationship with this bodega cat named Mio. Yeah, Mio. And then Mio got stolen from his bodega. Um, And I was a little bit upset because I was like, oh my God, I have my bodega cat. And he's like, super cool. I was in there a couple days ago, and I walked up to the register, and I looked down, and what do I see before me? Another little bodega cat, like older kitten age, but kind of striped and colored just like Mio is, and his name's Coco. Oh, Coco. Yeah, and I couldn't be more excited. I was, like, telling the owner. I was like, I remember when you guys had Mio, and he was like, oh, you remember But I think I'm mostly just a nuisance because I'm like, it's a very small bodega and I'm always just like crouched down, like taking up like two aisles worth of space trying to pet this cat. Trying to hang out with the cat. Yeah. But he's a real sweetie. Like Mio is pretty like intense with the claws and the rear rears, but like Coco is just like once that belly rubbed and once his face rubbed and he's got these like light gray eyes, he's like very spooky looking, but I think he's beautiful. He sounds beautiful. So that's my weekend animals. Yeah, I'll get pictures. 
trust me, trust that they will show up on the Instagram. <laughs> well, Meredith, uh, that's a great week in animals. My Thank week you. in animals involves a new thesis regarding <gasps> the film Home Alone. Okay. Oh, my God. Kevin McAllister was never actually home alone as he shared the house with the pet tarantula of yes. his brother and fashion Buzz. icon Buzz. Yes. The most notable scene partner of the tarantula is Daniel Stern, one of the wet bandits. And he tells a story where that shot where the tarantula is on his face and he screams uh-huh. that they were originally going to use a fake prop tarantula. But it didn't quite read, so they used the real tarantula. Oh, my gosh. And there was a tarantula handler that introduced him to Barry the tarantula. He may (laughs) be misremembering the name, but when he tells the story, he uses the name Barry. And he met Barry and learned about Barry's venom and how if they remove the venom, that Barry would die. But Daniel was concerned that he was going to get bit. He had clearly told this story hundreds and hundreds of times. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that we should maybe stop calling those films Home Alone and it should start being called Home with Barry. At <laughs> Home with Barry, maybe. Oh my gosh. I love that. First of all, Barry is a very sturdy pet name, particularly yeah. for a tarantula. I have to point that out. <laughs> yes. And yeah, At Home with Barry is a much catchier title than Home Alone. Yeah. I love Home Alone. I love that. I love Home Alone 2 as well. Lost in New York. Yeah, yeah, that's next on the list. Mm-hmm. And but then yeah. also, I just have to share that Phoebe Judge is kind of moving in on our racket. I saw that. I'm Phoebe Judge. Um, I'm Phoebe Judge, and I'm going to name my show after Mike's second favorite stuffed animal of all time, Wild Thing. <laughs> How dare she? And do two-minute segments about animals. How dare she? I actually didn't listen yet, but can you give our listeners plus moi um, just like a, a what happens in these two clips or these two minutes? What happens in these two minutes of Phoebe Judge's Wild Thing podcast? Well, Phoebe Judge futilely tries to recreate the animal magic that you and I share every meeting and delivers, you know, just a few quick little fun facts, but no taxonomic information, no addressing of Carl Linnaeus's problematic nature or, you know, mating rituals. There's no poems. There's no sturdy pet names. There's no feedback. It's really just, you know, a, a really uh, mezzo forte attempt, maybe even a mezzo <laughs> piano attempt by Miss yeah, Phoebe Judge. Insane. Otherwise a titan of you know, the spoken word genre. Right, right. Oh, man. Get out of our lane, Phoebe. You've got so much going for you. Yeah, for real. Please. Let us have this one. Yeah, but that's kind of it for my week in animals, if I'm honest. I mean, all around, that sounds like a pretty good week. Yeah, it was chill. Well, do you want to start our week, this new week in animals, by learning about some new animals? Yeah, let's kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer. Ready? Yeah, okay. Taxana you. Taxana we. Taxana who. Taxana me. Kingdom. Animalia. It's old hat by now. Phylum. Cordata. The water's fine for spines. Class. Aves. Oh, to possess the gift of flight. 
Order. Svenisiforms. Oh, never mind. These are flightless birds. Family. Svenisidae. Flightless and aquatic. Genus. Eudiptula. What a good little diver. Species. Eudiptula minor. They use their wings for swimming and not for flying. It's the little blue penguin. Oh, cute. Yeah, aren't they so cute? Oh, they're so cute. You know, when you say flightless birds, I immediately go to ostriches. That's fun. I threw you for a loop then. You did. You did. Because I was like, oh, it's going to be such a penguin giveaway when I go into flightless and aquatic birds. I guess that I don't think of them as birds, which is interesting because I know they're birds. Yeah. But when you said flightless and aquatic, I, I didn't think about, you know, the Antarctic. Right. Well, actually, and these guys aren't Antarctic. Oh. These are more warm weather buddies. Oh. And you know why? Because they live along the um, southern coasts of New Zealand and Australia. Oh. But we'll talk about like more about that coming up. All right. But I love that you immediately were like, oh, cute. Because that's how I feel when I think about little penguins. I go, oh, they're so cute. And they're so cute because they're the littlest of the penguin species of all of them. So it's we've got the little blue penguins. They're also known as blue penguins or little penguins or fairy penguins as well. So cute. So they are the smallest species of penguin, whereas like the emperor penguins that we know from like March of the Penguins fame. Sure. Those are the ones that live in like those extremely cold, hostile environments in Antarctica. Right. Whereas these little guys, these little fairy blue little penguins... They like to hang out on the coastlines and along, like, the coastal islands off of Australia and New Zealand. Fun. Yeah, they are fun. Um, Okay. So I love that we kind of touched on the fact that these birds are just kind of weird and that we don't really think of them as birds, oddly. Like, they're, they're kind of just their own thing, right? Right. Yeah, I don't think of them as, like, any way related to, like, a sparrow you would see. Every day. But just interesting. So we go in class, aves, so birds. But then in order, we're immediately into penguins. And then family also pretty much just means penguins. And then Eudiptula is where we get into the distinction of little penguins. Sure. As opposed to those like big emperor penguins of Antarctica. Okay. But anyway, I just found, I wrote down wings have evolved into flippers. And I was just like, at what point? At what point in that transition, if you can imagine it like slowly morphing from like a wing, like a sparrow wing into a flipper, at what point does it become a flipper and why is a flipper not a fin and why are fins not flippers? And I'm just so confounded. Yeah, myself also. Can you elucidate? Are flippers like a mammalian thing? Mm. Are flippers just like dumb fins? I don't know. I'm just like... Well, this is interesting because didn't we have fin-footed mammals? Wasn't that a thing? So this... Fin-footed... Yeah, now I'm... Fish? Well, no, no there were fin-footed mammals for the... Your oh, pen- seals pen- or your... Pinnipedia. Pinnipedia, that's right. What yeah, was that for again? That was for the walrus. The walrus, that's right, with the vibrissae, the pinnipedia. Yeah, and those are fin-footed mammals, exactly. So we have ambiguity about fins and flippers then. Yeah. Wow. If anybody out there knows. Animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. This is going to be like the confounding clubby question of the week. Fins versus flippers. What's up with that? Mm. Or is that just a preview for another segment? Future segment. (laughs) Fins versus flippers. What's up with that? 
Do dolphins fish. have fins or flippers? God, what the dolphins. fuck? I don't know. It goes straight know. to the top. Oh, man. Once you hit, like, big flipper, you're in trouble. We're really tapping into something here, Mike. Yeah. Help us, Phoebe Judge. No. Stay out of our lane, Phoebes. <laughs> okay, anyway. Back to little fairy penguins. So... Just visually, these guys, I mean, they're going to look like penguins in the sense that penguins usually have a white or brighter colored belly. And then on their backside, so what would that be? Like their dorsal side, they're going to be dark. And in this case, it's kind of like a slate blue gray color. So essentially on the backside of the flippers and on the whole back of the body. Sure. And then it's white underneath, which is really useful for them when they're swimming. So like looking down, a predator looking down at a pink, like at the ocean, probably the dark of the penguins upper side is going to blend in with that. And then predators looking at them from below when they're swimming, it's going to blend into the lightness of the sky. Mm. Genius camouflaging penguins. You do it. Yeah. Good work. Good work, guys. Yeah, the Wikipedia was really interesting in that it was very complete and very thorough in describing, like, the population numbers of all of these different little penguin colonies. So they're very geographically distinct. There may even be, like, subspecies represented within these colonies. But they went through all of these tiny little island colonies that I've never heard of, and it was far too extensive to remunerate here nor would it be very interesting. But just know, there's lots of different colonies on these kind of coastal outcroppings off the coast of Australia, the southern coast, and they're going to vary in size. And I guess right now I can kind of talk about, essentially, it just seems like there's varying numbers for varying reasons, and a lot of them are human-caused, of course. So we just kind of talk about some of the threats to these colonies and why... Some are successful and some are not and have little, really low numbers compared to others. So for a long time, these little penguins, well, they were shot for sport and for food and kind of cruelly just for like amusement. It reminded me a bit of like the passenger pigeons that people just like took great pleasure in just waving a big stick through the sky just to take out a bunch of birds for fun. Mm. It seems kind of amusement like along those lines. Sure. But then also predators, non-native predators to these islands that are brought to the island for whatever reason, like cats and dogs are a huge threat to these little penguins in particular. So certain island communities are like designated as like dog-free zones. Like you're not allowed to bring a dog on the island at all because of the threat they pose to these penguins. Uh-huh. And then there's also foxes and other like birds of prey that will um, feed on these guys. But also, it's just like the obvious things like climate change and oil spills and plastics. Um, they're all just contributing to the success for, or unsuccess of these poor penguins. I hate it. Yeah, that's not good. No fun, right? No. Let's just kind of um, put that on pause for now, the, neg- the negative stuff. Okay. But what is fun is that there's like actually a whole penguin island. It's called Penguin Island. And it's off of the coast of Western Australia. And there's like a thousand pairs of the penguins on Penguin Island. Adorable. Which is adorable. They have their own island named after them. How cool is that? That's very cool. But additionally, so we've got kind of the exploitation side of the penguins. Kind of what I talked about in terms of hunting them for food and amusement and blah, blah, blah. There's also another way where you can essentially capitalize on them in a way that 
helps them survive and preserve their colonies, which is to kind of attract tourism around the little penguin colonies. Uh-huh. And where they build their burrows. So they typically build their burrows kind of off of the beach in either sandy areas that the men build up. They attract their mates by building up these fancy nests or burrows. Um, or they'll kind of nest under logs or in other rocky crevices. But anyway, they come out of the ocean. They feed, they're out and they feed all day. And then they come back around dusk. And so various cities and on various islands, they've got like these penguin parades at dusk. And I even saw a video in Melbourne where they actually have like grandstands set up. There's like bleachers so people can gather at dusk to watch all the penguins like come in all clumsily out of the ocean to return to their burrows for the night. It's adorable. Yeah, there's all these people like lined up for like a sporting event. I'm like, that's so sweet. I love that. That's an idea of like the, the, um, City can still kind of make money off of this tourism industry, but it's a tourist industry that is based on the survival and the protection of these of these little penguins. So cute. <laughs> okay. So we'll just get a little bit more just fun, straightforward facts in here for you. Love that. So what do little penguins eat? They like... Here's a word, a kind of fish I learned today, the clupioid fish. Oh. So this is a kind of raffined fish, and it's um, like sardines and related species. So little guys. It's kind of what you would expect a penguin to eat. Little sardines swimming around. Right. Other little fish. Sure. Um, they're into cephalopods and crustaceans. So on in one study, it uh, was determined that the little penguin's diet was 24% squid, 76% fish. But obviously, as these numbers are so variable throughout these colonies, it's not just humans. It's um, prey availability as well. Sure. That affects their livelihoods or lack thereof. Okay. Speaking of livelihoods, let's talk about penguino, the penguino amor, the penguin love. When they make their return to these nesting sites um, in between like June and August, the men essentially will kind of like put on a display by building up the home and attract a mate that way. Cute. And then um, sandy burrows and rock crevices and caves. So the mates share in incubation and chick rearing responsibilities. And this is the only species of penguins capable of breeding more than one clutch during a mating season. So one clutch meaning like one to three eggs. Probably. Sure. Yeah. And that can happen like multiple times through the mating season, which is crazy. So that could be like eight to 28 weeks. Hmm. Interesting, right? Because I guess normally you would only have like probably one to two chicks, like in other instances I've seen. If March of the Penguins showed me anything, it was generally one. I don't really know much about penguin clutch size. No. Typical. It's, it's not common. No. <laughs> I would imagine that it would be like relatively small, I guess. Yeah. That makes that tracks because it's a kind of harsh environment. And most of the birds we've encountered end up only rearing one to two. Yeah. Yeah. And they got to balance those eggs on their little feeties. Yeah, it's tricky. There's not much room for that many eggs on that few feeties. Right. Yeah. Two feet, two eggs. Right. At most. <laughs> Oh, man. I meant to include this when I was talking about ridiculous um, ridiculous uses, I guess, of little penguins. There was even one account where, like, 
there was a taxidermist commissioned to make a lady's hat out of a little penguin. And I guess it's like, this is a quote. It had with black flippers set at a jaunty angle on the crown. So like, what does that mean? That the flippers themselves were like mounted on the hat, like sticking out and up. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. So effed up. Yeah, so it was a taxidermist commissioned to make a hat out of little penguin. And the description of that hat said it included black flippers set at a jaunty angle on the crown. Oh, okay. I understand now. But this does, I don't know what year this was. I will, I would assume like 19th century because in the 19th century, there was this weird boom of um, women getting these hats made out of just like the most exotic bird feathers they could like these very ostentatious like fascinator type hats with crazy bird feathers Hmm. yeah and bird flippers apparently too yeah and flippers i mean it's all ugh, it's too much oh but another fun thing about penguins um and their feathers they're very they're like oiled up right to make them waterproof and that oil actually comes from like a gland at the base of their tail so when they're always like you know, futzing about in their back feathers with their beaks. They're getting that oil to like rub all over their other feathers. Oh, that's kind of fun. Yeah. So they oil themselves up. Self-oiling birds. You want to keep your bird well oiled. And it's nice when the bird just takes care of it itself. Yeah. Low maintenance, self-oiling birds. So do you have any other questions? Sorry, that was a very scatterbrained presentation, but. No, I kind of love it. (laughs) I don't know that I do. I mean, I guess I didn't realize that there were penguins that were not in the Arctic, but that, of course, makes sense. Mm-hmm. And So they're definitely, like, penguins are all southern hemisphere. I should make that clear. Right, right. That I always think of that Gary Larson cartoon of polar bears and penguins. Right. And they're not in the same hemisphere. And he's like, well, whatever. It's a cartoon. But this actually, this kind of stuff does bother me. Like, I don't want to get this kind of stuff wrong, you know? Yeah. How could you? Well, I don't know. That's I feel really great about that. Do you want to just take Do you want to take a break? Yeah, let's do that. All right. Oh, hey Gary. How's it going? Oh, hey Jeswaldo. What could you possibly be so happy about? Well, wouldn't you like to know, Gary? As a matter of fact, I would like to know, Jeswaldo. It's been very difficult to keep my spirits up since Sam, the silverback, came and established dominance in our family unit. I can't seem to get any of the other gorillas to even give me a passing grunt anymore. It's funny you should mention that, Gary, because I have been positively wrist deep in gorilla love since I've discovered Brand Clubby's new line of Activape, muscle tanks for macho monkeys. Clothes, Jeswaldo, that's your solution to parade around like a Filthy human? But Gary, why should the silverbacks always call the shots around here? They may sit at the top of our social pyramid, but now we can sit at the heights of fashion with Activape's wide line of sexy cuts and fun graphics, specially designed to accentuate your impressive gorilla pecs and biceps. You should have seen the ladies come running when they saw my sweet new tank designed by none other than Walter the Warthog. Walter the Warthog? The Sultan of Savannah's sass? That's right, Gary. With Walter the Warthog's newest collab with Brand Clubby and Activate, our bold tanks will make the shimmeriest of silverbacks pale in comparison. 
Just Waldo, this seems like the very thing I need to turn my gorilla frown upside down. Do they have leopard print tanks? Absolutely, Gary. And if you use code JESWALDO15, you can save 15% at checkout. What a momentous day in ape history this is! OMG, Mike, I just can't seem to shake the image of my new aquatic stud. Oh my god, who is hey? Describe him! Well, first of all, I just love, love, love the way he looks at me with that adorable dead look in his big beady eyes. Oh, and Mike, you know how I just love a strong jaw and intimidating mouth. You always did have a thing for the bad boys, Myrtle. And what a bad boy he is. He positively terrorizes the Amazon. Meredith, no, you are not chasing after Polly Perana. Guilty as charged. And I must say, he is quite the catch. Well, oh my God, Meredith, I can't wait to tell you about my new crush. Oh my God, tell me everything. Well, his name is the Eurasian Craig Martin, and he is a flaptastic bird, and he makes these adorable little nests out of mud that hang out from the underside of rock croppings. He's just so edgy and into extreme sports. Oh my gosh, he literally lives on the edge. Wait, his name is Craig Martin? Yeah. That's a studly name. It's the studliest name. I like that I can call him Craigie or Martin or Marty or Craig Martin, and he responds to all those names. You're so lucky. I think we're both lucky, Meredith. Let's practice writing our new last names. All right. Meredith Piranha. Mike Craig Martin. Texana you. Texana we. Texana who? Texana me. Kingdom. And Amelia, this isn't a show about tariffs. Philo. Arthropoda. Insects, arachnids, myriapods, crustaceans. Malacostraca, the largest class of crustaceans. Order. Decapoda. Crabs and shrimps. Family. Pandali day. Edible shrimps. Cha-ching. Genus. Pandalus. Cold water prawns. Species. Borealis. It's a cocktail party icon. The pink shrimp. It's like a um, t-ball team. Go pink shrimps. Go pink shrimps. <laughs> Shout out to arthropods, the most successful phylum in terms of both the number of species and the number of individual organisms. Wow. <laughs> But shout out to primates for inventing written language. Boom. Take that, crabs. All right. So let's look at this. We have Kingdom Animalia. This is not a show about tariffs. Like like tariffs? Like British tariffs on the yeah, colonists? Yeah, like taxes and things. Yeah. The Brits aren't the only ones that enact tariffs. Oh, I know. I know. It was just like the first. Then the phylum arthropoda, arthropods, and then now we're back to the subphylums that we've been talking about before. Okay. So we have the four major subphyla are hexapods, which are insects, myriapods, which are like the centipedes and millipedes, Mm -hmm. the chalicerata, which are, are spiders, scorpions, Horseshoe crabs, etc. Yes. 
pet, our petty palp friends. Petty palps. Our petty pals. Yeah. And then the fourth major subphyla is the crustaceans. Crustacea. Gotcha. So now we go to our class, Malcastraca. And that's crabs, lobsters, crayfish, shrimp, krill, woodlice, amphipods, mantis shrimps, and many other less familiar animals. They normally have 20 body segments, and this is a head, thorax, abdomen situation, typically. Gotcha. We are now down to the order. The decapods literally means 10-footed. They may have as many as 38 appendages. Remember, 20 body segments, each pair of appendage from each body segment except for the telson, which is the tail, and then the head, I guess. But as many as 38 appendages, arranged in one pair per body segment. So decapod is kind of a misnomer then. Well, only 10 of those appendages are legs. This goes back to what we were talking okay. about, where like the chalicerata, the clarissas, the, the <laughs> mouth parts, are an appendage. So there are appendages before you get to... The actual legs. The locomotori. Right. Which are the petty... Those are the petty palps. But the petty palps are the locomotory organs in the horseshoe crabs. But I'm not sure that they're necessarily legs. But again, these are different subphylums. So... (laughs) Right. The decapod is accurate because there are 10 legs. Gotcha. So-called legs. But there are as many as 38 appendages on decapods. Hear ya. Hear ya. Yeah. The infra order, Caridia, this is where we get into shrimp as we think of them, like the edible shrimp. The decapod suborder, infra order, sections and subsections is a very interesting line of inquiry. There's a lot of division and there's really little agreement amongst taxonomists regarding the like phylo how do we say this? Phylogeny? Oh yeah, I think phylo I think so. Phylogeny. Phylogeny. Phylogeny of crustaceans, which is like how they are ordered and ranked. And a quote was that every study gives totally different results, nor do even one of these studies match any of the rival morphology studies. So it, there's a lot of dispute about the uh, uh, with amongst taxonomists regarding crustaceans. Do you think it's, again, just illustrating the lack of... Um... Maybe lack's not a good word. The restrictiveness of the Linnaean taxonomy structure in that there are so many creatures yet and yet again, and it seems to be an abundance of them in this crustacean world that just don't fit in these neat compartments prescribed by Linnaean taxonomy. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think that it's also that there's just so many species and such variety. Right. And there's really no disagreement that these Caridian species are shrimp, but there's over 3,000 different species. Yeah. And these are occasionally what are referred to as true shrimp. But as we've learned, there's different types of shrimp. And all true to themselves in their own way. Right. So within this infraorder Caridia, we have lots of superfamilies and families. The most (laughs) significant commercial species of the Caridians is our... Pandalus borealis, which is the pink shrimp. That's what we're talking about. This is the icon that we know in America, I guess, generally. The second most significant is the Krangon Krangon of the family Krangonidae. Krangon Krangon. Krangonidae Krangon Krangon. (laughs) And it's the brown shrimp. So our Pandalus borealis, the pink shrimp, is captured at about 10 times the rate of the Krangon Krangon. 
And it's noteworthy that about 13% of the global wild capture is Caridians of shrimp, which is our shrimp that we know and understand. Okay. And they're not significantly involved in aquaculture, so they make up only about 6% of the total production of all shrimps and prawns as Caridians, which led me to wonder what are the other ones. So 26% of the total like fishing collection of shrimp is just like not further identified like shrimp decapods, you know? And then 20%, nearly 20% are shrimp, this uh, Akiyami paste shrimp, which are shrimp that are made into paste. Okay. Then we have 12% is a southern rough shrimp, which is a Chinese species, like an Indo-Pacific species that's uh, farmed for Chinese markets and other Asian markets as well. Mm-hmm. And then 11% is our Pendalis borealis, the northern prawn. And then below that is the the northern prawn, the pink shrimp. It has lots of names. And then beyond that is tiger prawns, etc. Okay. So let's talk anatomy. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So we've got a cephalothorax, which is the head and thorax that are fused together. Okay. And so, okay. I hope I'm not doing a disservice by maybe, how can we translate this to like the shrimp that we pull out of a a little cocktail glass? So what are we? Sure. So that is the abdomen of the shrimp. So we're going to start further forward on the shrimp and get eventually to that. But like, if you think of like a crayfish, that's like kind of a complete shrimp format. More or less. I guess what I just can't picture is like, you know how like the, the tail kind of come, I guess that's the tail. It comes around like the fleshier part, like the thickest part of a piece of shrimp. Mm-hmm. Is that the, is the fleshiest part, is that the head or is that the lower part of the body? Is that the abdomen? That's the abdomen. By the time it gets to us as consumers, generally... There is no head. There is no cephalothorax. There's no legs. And in fact, on the shrimp that you get, if there are little legs on there, uh-huh. like sometimes you know how some of them have little legs? Yeah. Those are not actually legs. Those are the pleopods. So we're going to get we're going to get there, but okay. know that what the piece that we eat is the abdomen, the muscular abdomen of the shrimp. Okay. So, again, forward of that, we have a cephalothorax, which is the head and thorax that are fused together. And it has a carapace, which is the shell that protects the, protects the cephalothorax. And it also surrounds the gills. And water is pumped through the carapace over the gills by the mouth parts. Mm, mouth parts. Yep. We have a rostrum. We have eyes, whiskers, and legs that all issue from the carapace. The rostrum is from the Latin rostrum which means beak and is pointy like a beak it's great for attacking or defending and then there's two bulbous eyes on stalks that flank the rostrum which have panoramic vision and are very good at detecting movement Mm. which makes me think of your mantis shrimp friend yes just about to mention him or her we have two pairs of whiskers that are are antennae that issue from the head one is very long it's twice the length of the shrimp And those are used to detect where they are. The other antenna are quite short, which are used for determining whether or not they can eat their prey, suitability of prey. Got it. And they can kind of smell or taste, those words are in quotes, by sampling chemicals in the water with the antenna. 
So now if we flip over to the ventral side, we have eight pairs of appendages issuing from the cephalothorax. The first three pairs, the maxillipedes, which is Latin for jaw feet, mm-hmm. are used as mouth parts. Then the next five pairs are the periopods, and those are the 10 decapod legs that we talked about earlier. So again, from the cephalothorax, there are eight pairs of appendages that issue from the cephalothorax. The first three are used as mouth parts, the first three pairs, the first six legs. And then the next five pairs, the periopods, are the 10 decapod legs that we talked about earlier. Got it. Frequently, the first two pairs of the periopods have kela, I think is how you say it, C-H-E-L-A, which are those little claws. And you use them for feeding, you use them for fighting, whatever you want. (laughs) Okay, so now, Meredith, we're at the abdomen, which is the delicious part that we eat. Right. So they're, like snakes, kind of all abs, these shrimp. Yes, all abs, all abs. And so there are six segments and a thinner shell than the carapace. You may be thinking, what about those shrimp tails with legs? Those are the pleopods or swimmerettes. <laughs> and they can, depending on the species, they can be used for swimming, brooding eggs. Sometimes they have gills for breathing. Some species use the first two pairs or the first pair for insemination. You know, different strokes for different shrimp, really. <laughs> the sixth segment terminates into the telson, which is that final, all the way at the back end segment of arthropods. Mm-hmm. The telson, which is the tail. And then it's Flanked by two pairs of appendages called the uropods, which allow the shrimp to swim backwards and function like rudders. And if, if you think of a shrimp tail, it kind of fans out. Yes. And so the telson is the center, and then those two pieces on the side flanking them, those are the uropods. Okay. And it's that aggregate telson uropod system that makes it look like the shrimp has a splayed fan tail. Perfect. Couldn't have said it better. <laughs> Yeah, that's a Mike Luno original sentence. (laughs) And then I was surprised to hear this, and you'll be disappointed, but there's not a ton of info on shrimp mating. Really? Yeah, but there is some sort of interesting hermaphroditism. Sure. And I saw some various information, like like post-larva specimens mature first as males for two years and then a sex transition begins afterwards spawning begins on the third winter hatching occurs during the spring i saw a paper the abstract for a paper by db carlisle on the sexual biology of pendalis borealis the termination of the male phase and it says that in some populations The hermaphroditism is partial. That's to say only certain individuals undergo sex reversal, while others are primarily female, never going through a male phase. All the males undergo a sex reversal. So that's interesting. All the males were at one point female? Is that what that means? That's my interpretation of that. Hmm. It says that this this varies amongst populations. And by contrast, there's other populations that have been investigated that experience... That, or that exhibit full obligatory protandric hermaphroditism and the population contains no primary females. All the females have passed through a male phase. So it's just like there's a lot of there's a lot of questions there. You know, this D.B. Carlisle has never encountered a production of primary females. It seems like all of the females have first been males. So there's a little bit of like okay, what's going on with this hermaphroditism in our Caridian shrimp? 
Caridier. That's very interesting. That's a line of inquiry alert. Yeah, for real. Very curious. For real. Meredith, that's the extent of my shrimp cocktail du jour. Do you have any questions <laughs> or do you desire any clarification? I don't think so. I think I need to go just stare at um, some shrimp anatomy diagrams. Yeah, recommended. But that's on me. That's definitely highly recommended. Yeah. I'm really fascinated by all this stuff with the anatomy of arthropods. I think it's so interesting now that I'm actually learning about it. And for me, it's just this appendage thing and kind of reconsidering the concept of an appendage as not necessarily an arm or a leg, but also as right. an antenna or an eye or a telson or a uropod, you know? I'm just, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I've never really considered the fact that, like, the shrimp that we receive in the grocery store is, like, not what shrimp look like (laughs) wild. I'm feeling like such an idiot because I just always imagine them, like, in the ocean just kind of, like, doing crunches and that's how they move through the water. But that's ridiculous. I mean, it's not not ridiculous. I know better than that. But that's kind of how they move. Because if they swim backwards, you, you know, think about that. Like, that would be a contraction, right? So this, the muscular abdomen of the shrimp certainly has a lot to do with their locomotory action, you know. <laughs> right, of course, of course. You wouldn't get abs like that if you weren't using them constantly. When I started on this shrimp journey, Meredith, I started with the Krangon Krangon of the family Kragonidae <laughs> of the House McLeod, <laughs> the, the clan Kragonidae. <laughs> I started with that, but I thought this pink shrimp was maybe a little bit more relatable. But it's just in terms of like reading about shrimp, it's just these general statements. And then there's like, oh, well, there's 3,000 species of these things. So trying to pin down an exact definition of what it is is tricky because these things have kind of diverged so fiercely that they've all kind of found their own little thing, you know? Yeah, it seems like it. Yeah. And also that I had not considered that paste shrimp would be such a significant portion of the shrimp harvested yeah or that people would just not really categorize the types of shrimp that they got like well they're just shrimp and that's all we're saying that they are we don't know the species but i guess from a from a fisher person's standpoint i guess that makes sense sure and if you're processing these things into pastes and things like that and you're just catching such diversity but hey they're all shrimp you know you're not right. going to like go through shrimp by shrimp and separate them out so you have great data about mass of fished shrimp. Right. Shrimp by shrimp, plastron by plastron. Going over the shrimp roller coaster. They're always going over the roller coaster in that song. Sure. They're step by step. Sure. Yeah, they are. They love that roller coaster. They sure do. Shrimp love roller coasters too. I don't know if you knew that. I guess I did. Um, well, do you want to take a break, Meredith? Yeah, we should. All right. (sighs) Sheila, you look so tired. Deaf, Deb. I'm just really tuckered out from my busy week of gnawing to maintain incisors of an appropriate length. It sure is exhausting being a marmot. And we're having company over to celebrate my daughter Steph's graduation from Dr. Stilton's School for Exceptional Marmots. I always feel so much pressure to clean my burrow before family comes. You must be at your wit's end. I am, Dub. I don't know how I'm going to clean up in time. Well, Sheila, scurry closer, because I'm going to let you in on a secret. 
Brand Clubby recently announced Marmot Maids, a burrow cleaning service for marmots and other small burrowing mammals. That sounds amazing! Shh! Sheila, pipe down. OMG, I'm so sorry. It's okay. We should keep it quiet so they don't get swamped with reservations. Good thinking, Deb. So it's exactly what it sounds like, and it's possible to book through Brand Clubby's web portal. I love the web portal. Marmot Maids, a burrow cleaning service for marmots and other small burrowing mammals, is fully licensed and bonded and very discreet, so your nosy mole neighbors won't know your secret to maintaining an extremely clean home. Wow! Marmot Maids, a burrow cleaning service for marmots and other small burrowing mammals, sounds like the product I needed. Brand Clubby does it again. No surprises there. Wow, it's a very strong smell of groats today. Yeah, those are some soggy oats. It's fucking humidity, man. Gross. Um, well, I guess it's obvious. We're in the feed bag. Yeah. Um, well, Misty from Manhattan asks, do French squirrels like ballet? Ooh la la. Les écrées. That's how you would say the French squirrels. The squirrels in French, I think. Les I don't know that a French girl, a French squirrel, would ever admit to not liking ballet. Nor right. do I know that a French squirrel would ever admit to liking ballet. I think a French squirrel would just kind of swear at me and tell me that I don't know anything about art. Probably through his little clicks, he's calling you a philistine. Right. Which is, I guess, the whole point of this question is that you can't really ask a French squirrel this question. Yeah, because we don't speak French. Right. And they just have too much attitude. Yeah. Squirrels, I've always just I've known to not fuck with them. I will say they kind of do, at times, exhibit the liveness of the ballerina. Yeah. They've got great ups. They've got great jumps. At times, great lines, too. Sure, So they might like it whether they know it or not. Yeah. I mean, I feel like Russian squirrels definitely like ballet. And I feel like French squirrels, they do like ballet, even if they have a complicated relationship with it. You know what I mean? Like, Sure. Even if there's some trauma there. So I think that, yeah, my, my answer to this question is yes. I, yeah, I would agree. We. Oui. All right. A fish position is we. Oui. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. So we have a question from Jade, who's from Java. And they want to know, on a scale from 1 to 10, how much do either of you want to see an orangutan wear a toupee? Well. I think 10 is far too small a number <laughs> to express my desire say- for this. I will say, I mean, we need to know that the toupee is being applied humanely and not in the way that, like, the cowboy hats were attached to the pigeons. Oh, yes. Okay. And we want to know that the orangutan has some choice in the matter. Sure. Sure. You know what I think of when I read this question, Meredith, is I think about Mary Lauren's story about the orangutan in the sweatpants. Yes, in pajama pants. That's kind of what I was thinking of. At the Cincinnati Zoo. And now I want a 
orangutan in pajama pants and a toupee. Exactly. And, like no shirt. Yes. Like ideally no shirt. I think that's the look. That is the look. Yes. And then maybe like a briefcase. <laughs> right. Or standing next to a marmot who's carrying a briefcase. Or carrying a marmot who's carrying a briefcase. <laughs> like the traducan of my dreams. I guess the answer to Jade's question then is a 10, as long as we know that the orangutan is has chosen to wear the toupee and is humanely wearing the toupee. Right. And is also wearing sweatpants and is holding a marmot. And that marmot is holding a briefcase. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Oh. Meredith, do you want to read this last question or do you want me to read it? Oh, I'll read it. Tori from Nashville asks, could it be that the marmots are calling out for freedom? Well, funny that marmots should just play into these questions so hard. Um, wow. I mean... What do they need freedom from? Carrying the briefcases? Kind of afraid to ask. I mean, maybe that is one of the things about them living in these homes is that they're sacrificing this sort of freewheeling, you know, lifestyle of migrating constantly. They kind of lay down roots. That 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 ancient trope of the rambling marmot. <laughs> oh, that marmot was a rambler and a gambler as it came down to our town. <laughs> <laughs> the rambling that, marmot song. <laughs> There's always a song that rhymes rambling with gambling. Yeah. Always. And it's 97% of the time about marmots. They're everywhere. Did we begin to answer this question? No, we have not <laughs> yet. I mean, sure, I would say. I don't know. I think that I think that every marmot sings its own song. Yeah. Sometimes it's a song of freedom. Sometimes it's a song of warning. Sometimes it's a song of love. So then I guess the answer to this question is, yes, the marmots are calling out for freedom, but not all of them are calling out for freedom. Right. And they are also calling out for other things. Right. Very diplomatic answer. You, ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> uh, well, Meredith, that was fun. That was a light and tight one. We're like back like in those. the groove from... Uh, back in the New York groove. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I guess keep the questions coming. Animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. And have a safe day. Ding, ding, ding. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal 